This is a recording made in the chapel of the open book and is number seven of the series entitled The Form of Sound Words. In this series we are taking key words that we find in the Apostles' ministry and giving them some sort of examination. And we've adopted the artificial method. There's nothing to commend it except that it's handy of putting them in alphabetical order. It doesn't mean to say that the one that we start is a more important one than the second. And we have looked at the letter B under the heading of the uh, bonds because of Paul's emphasis upon his prison ministry and the church which is the body of Christ of which we are members on equal terms. And now we come to a rather controversial one, the question of baptism. In the epistle to the Ephesians chapter 4 you may remember uh, that he enjoins upon those who belong to that high calling that their first concern They are to study, they are to endeavour to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then he gives seven items in that unity of the Spirit. And one of them is called one baptism. Well, the stress upon the word one that comes seven times makes it rather difficult for us to say that means two. A person may say, well, there's the baptism of the word water and there's a baptism in Spirit. And we've got to keep them both. But you see, when it says one hope, one faith, one Lord, one God and Father, one baptism, you can't say two when you're speaking of one in in a series like that. So we're faced with a question. It's no good saying, do you believe in baptism? Because that's too wide a question. Because you immediately would say, which baptism? There's a baptism by John the Baptist. There's a baptism that belongs to the ceremonial of the tabernacle before Christ came, before the gospel period at all. There's a baptism of fire, as it says. There's a baptism of suffering. There's a baptism of identification. Now, which one? You see, we must be just careful over this, otherwise we can leave the impression that we're denying something in the scriptures. So, let's take this opportunity of at least canvassing the subject without trying to make your mind up for you, face the fact that it's not good enough to say, do you believe in baptism? You have to say, which baptism are you speaking about? And then, of course, if it's not known that there are quite a number of departments into which that word can be placed, well, here's an opportunity of at least sitting down and pondering it together. So we open the study in the New Testament with the baptism of John. Not that I mean to say that anybody today is asking, are you going to be baptised with the baptism of John? But we can't start this subject without looking at that, because that's the way in which it enters into the New Testament. And we've come to the um, Matthew, the third chapter, where we have John's ministry. And we'll have to take these without being too uh, uh, in, in detail, otherwise our time will have passed. Matthew chapter 3. We are told in the first verse, in those days, John the Baptist. Now that's his very title. Baptism was so associated with John's ministry that he's called over and over again, John the Baptizer. Now you see, none of the Pharisees, Sadducees or common people, when they heard John was baptizing in Jordan, looked at one another and said, what's the word baptism mean? They all went out there and listened to him, calling upon them to repent because the kingdom of heaven had come nigh, and they were baptized. 
Well, that means to say they had some idea that it meant something, that it was already understood by those who were Jewish people and had lived under the dispensation of the law and the Old Testament, because baptism is there as well. It's not merely an ordinance in the church that we know. It belongs to all time. So John the Baptist came and he called upon them, and we are told in verse 6, they were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. And we are told that that baptism was to prepare a people for the Lord. Uh, he says in verse 11, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with Holy Ghost and with fire. So John baptized in water and Christ didn't. Well now you're a Christian, so you're going to be baptized in water and Christ didn't. I'm only saying, face it, you see, John the Baptist says, I baptize in water, but one that's coming, that's, that's the Saviour, he baptizes in the Holy Ghost and with fire. You may say, are we going to be baptized with fire? Oh, I'm not telling you that. I'm only saying, watch your step over these different passages, because the fire here has to do with judgment. Whose hand is in his hand, and he will throughly purge his floor, and gather his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And so we have the um, uh, John, and then the um, next section, we have our Saviour coming to be baptised. Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan, unto John to be baptised of him. But John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptised of thee, and comest thou to me. And the Lord said, Suffer it. Now, now we are told that John's baptism had more than one object in view. In the Gospel according to Luke, the first chapter, and the 17th verse, we are told this is one of the things that he would do. Verse 16, And many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God, and he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So John's ministry, and the call to baptism, the call to repent, was to prepare a people for the Lord who was about to come. Well, after the preparing for the Lord that was about to come, then there's the announcement of the John the Baptist, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That is in the third chapter. John, the repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Then in the fourth chapter of Matthew, when our Saviour commenced his public ministry, he said exactly the same words, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well now, of course, this is another question. Is the kingdom of heaven the church? Yes, say some. Well, we'll have to leave that for a time being, but most of us realise that the kingdom is one phase of God's redemptive purpose. The church, a called out people, is distinctly another. But there's one other feature with regard to John's baptism that we mustn't pass, and we find that more explicitly stated in the first chapter of John's Gospel. John's Gospel, he came, you see, to prepare a people. But he came to point out the Messiah himself for that people, bring the two together, the prepared people and the promised Messiah. So he says, in chapter 1, 29, The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, 
After me cometh a man which is preferred before me, for he was before me. And I knew him not, but that he should be made manifest to Israel. Therefore am I come baptizing with water. And John bear record, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it abode upon him. And I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same is he which baptizeth with the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost. And I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. Well, that's explicit, isn't it? Here's a man sent to baptize, to bring about repentance, to bring the people into preparedness, to point out the Messiah, the Lamb of God, and there his ministry ended. He must increase, I must decrease. Well, we mustn't spend time on that because after all we say, well, that doesn't belong to us, but it was a definite part of God's purpose at the beginning. Well, then when we come to the Acts of the Apostles, we find more things are said. An addition is made, some of these things. So shall we look at, um, first of all, the tenth chapter of the Acts, although we could go back earlier, but I'll pick this up first because of Peter's attitude. Peter is supposed to have opened the door of the church on the day of Pentecost. And it's a very surprising thing that an ordinary, average, everyday, ordinary, intelligent reader can read the book, uh, read the Bible, and read as apparently two contrary things and never stop to think, whereas if he saw it in an ordinary book, he'd have his finger on it at once. If Peter opened the door of the church to Jew and Gentile in the second chapter of the Acts, What's happened to Peter in the 10th chapter? Because he had a vision of a, a sheep coming down from heaven with all sorts of clean and unclean uh, animals and fowls in it and the word said, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And he said, Not so, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And while he wondered what it was all about, messengers came and said that a centurion, a Gentile, was wishing to hear words of salvation. And he looked at this man who came to him, verse 25, and as Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him, but Peter took him up and said, Stand up, I myself also am a man. Then it says, verse 28, a remarkable statement. He said unto them, You know how that it is an unlawful thing for a man that is a Jew to keep company or come unto one of another nation but God has showed me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Well, that's a strange thing for a man to say to a Gentile if he'd opened the door of the church in chapter 2. And then you see he was very reticent. He was going on right down this chapter, speaking of what the Lord had spoken to the children of Israel, not saying it to this Gentile. And we are told, verse 44, while Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on them all which heard the word. And they of the circumcision which believed were astonished. As many as came with Peter, because then on the Gentiles also was poured out the gifts of the Holy Ghost, for they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then answered Peter, Can any man forbid water that these should not be baptized which have received the Holy Ghost as well as we? So let's put the thing in reverse order. They received this baptism of the Holy Spirit and had these miraculous evidences before they were baptized in water. So he said, we can't stop it. 
Well, it's only to show you that it's a complex subject, not quite so easy to dispose of by just a wave of the arm and setting things aside. Well, then if you go back to the second chapter of the Acts, you'll find Peter's own statement concerning the purpose of baptism so far as he was concerned. (coughs) Verse 37, chapter 2. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, he didn't say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. He puts baptism straight away. Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Now you think of the epistles that Paul wrote to the church, whether it be before Acts 28 or afterwards. Can you find anywhere where he says that the remission of sins, the forgiveness of sins, is based upon the question of whether you're baptised or not. But you may say to me, but I know what he did say. What is that, friend? You tell me. Well, he says, Paul himself wrote to the Corinthians, Christ sent me not to baptise, but to preach the gospel. Well, now, if baptism was for the remission of sins, the gospel is for the remission of sins, and if he prevented these Corinthians from being baptised, how could they be saved? So you see, again you've got to face these things. Paul preached a full salvation, but he said, I baptised nobody except this one and that one, it didn't matter. Christ sent me not to baptise. Well, you couldn't say, oh, I don't know whether I preached this to to preach the gospel to him or the other, Christ sent me not to preach the gospel. You couldn't say that. So once more we have to, as it were, watch our step with regard to these subjects. But when Peter was speaking by the inspiration of God, it was perfectly right to associate Baptism with the remission of sins. Well, now we we go a stage further and um, we'll find that washing is very much associated with baptism. Uh, First of all, go back to, um, let's look now, the Matthew's Gospel again, I think, will be the best. The seventh chapter of the Gospel according to Matthew. The seventh chapter and verses four to six. Now, wait a minute, I think I've I've slipped up there somewhere, just let me see. The passage I'm looking for, and which I've temporarily forgotten, is the emphasis upon the baptism of pots and pans and beds and many such like things they do. Excuse me for making a slip there. But you do know that the Lord said about these people that that's what they were occupied with. Washings uh, that became a burden instead of a blessing. If anyone can find the passage, just sing out presently and I'll include it. But it's one of those things that's eluding me for the time being. The emphasis upon water for washing is also found when Paul refers, as he does in the epistle to the Hebrews, to the tabernacle services. Would you look at that? We've got the right passage this time. Hebrews, the um, ninth chapter. 
he speaks about the um in chapter 9, verse 1, then verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service. There were ordinances in the Old Testament as well as in the New, in connection with divine service. And then he says, in verse 9, that the tabernacle and its ministry was a figure for the time then present. Now you remember that in Colossians, he contrasts the Old Testament with its ordinances and its ceremonies, its observances, and says it's that they were shadows, but the body, the reality, is of Christ. Well, here again, he takes you back to the shadows of the Old Testament ministry, but the body is of Christ still. Here it is, which was a figure for the time then present, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect, as pertaining to the conscience, which stood only in meats and drinks and divers washings. Now that word washing is just the word baptism. It stood only in drinks, meats, and drinks, and divers baptisms. Well, when I read Colossians 2, it says that no man judge you with regard to meat or drink, and he's already spoken about one baptism in the context. Well now, is he contradicting himself, or is he going on teaching the same thing? that you belong to a calling where the observance of days and months and times and years, which were imposed by God, but not imposed upon you, is that a right word to use? Imposed? Oh yes, if I read on. Which stood only in meats and drinks and divers baptisms and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of reformation. But... Christ being come of good things to come, here's the shadow and the substance being contrasted. So that the baptisms of the Old Testament, particularly those associated with the tabernacle, were only to be imposed upon the people until Christ came, and then whatever the baptism stood for, took its place. So we have a washing, but we no need to have a washing of a ceremonial baptism. We have the forgiveness of sins, but we don't preach baptism for the, re, for the remission of sins because we will be mixing up the shadow with the reality that came afterwards. Now we take it a stage further. The um, Another aspect of baptism which we must include is found in Matthew's Gospel. I'm all of a wonder if I've got the right reference again, but friends, I think we shan't be making too many mistakes in one of these studies. Chapter 20. You remember a little controversy arose among the disciples and um, he had to rebuke them for their statement. They were arguing and wondering who was going to sit upon the right hand and the left hand of the Son of God when he came in his kingdom. And in verse 22 of Matthew 20, Jesus answered and said, Ye know not what ye ask. Are ye able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of? And to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? Now, this is chapter 20. So already in chapter 3, Christ had been baptized at Jordan. Well, he was now looking forward to a baptism, which hadn't taken place. And he said to his disciples, can you be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They said, yes, Lord. Well, he said, yes, you may be. But to give the right hand and the left on my father's uh, hand is not mine to give. What baptism could he be referred to? 
Well, there's only one baptism that he could refer to. That was now the baptism of suffering and death, which was involved in the cross. All thy waves and thy billows have gone over me, it says in the Old Testament psalm, thinking of that day of Christ's death on our account. So there was a baptism of suffering. But there was no water either sprinkled on him or in any way touching him. But it was a baptism that he was looking forward to that he must be, he said, how am I straightened in, I think, Luke's Gospel? How am I shut in and kept, as it were, narrowed till that be accomplished? Well, what about that baptism, friends? Don't you see, if we're not careful, we'll be so taken up with the shadow and argue the point whether it's by sprinkling or by immersion that we should forget that none of them are any good if Christ never went through that great ordeal, that baptism of suffering and death, which is the only one that matters so far as we are concerned, will become to our high calling and all the ordinances and ceremonies fade in the background and Christ is all and in all. But we must look at that a bit more closely yet. Will you now turn to another aspect of this question of baptism and that is in the epistle to the Galatians. In case anybody was not quite sure about that passage of Corinthians and baptism, let's take that in our stride, shall we? The first chapter of Corinthians. The first Corinthians and the first chapter. There were contentions among them and divisions among them and they were already forming little groups. I am of Paul, I am of Apollos and so on. And the apostle was grieved at this and he wanted to stop it. So he said, verse 12, now this I say, that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I have Kephas, and I have Christ, even making Christ a party name. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you but Crispus and Gaius, lest any should say that I had baptized in my own name. And I baptized also the household of Stephanus, besides I know not whether I baptized any other. But Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. So, he did baptize in the Acts of the Apostles' period, because it was right. But he said, it was a secondary thing. And I'm not sure whether I baptized any more. Well, you couldn't speak to a ritualistic clergyman today and say, well, you didn't keep any account whether you baptized him or not. You don't quite know whether you did or not, because if you look at the prayer book, this makes a child a, a child of God and an inheritor of the kingdom of heaven when it's a little baby. Well, Paul couldn't have endorsed that, could he? He said, oh, Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Well, now we leave that one and we'll go on to Galatians because there's another aspect which we find there. The epistle to the Galatians is still on the Acts of the Apostles' side of the dividing line. And here he says, uh, with regard to Christ, chapter 3, verse 24, chapter 3, verse 24, Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster, and that's not quite the meaning of the word here, it's not the schoolmaster, it's the pedagogue that led the children to school. I have a postcard somewhere at home, I think still, published in Poland, of a Jew with his little ringlets, with a whole string of children on his fingers and they're holding his cloak and he's taking them all to the village school and they still did it in that Jewish quarter. 
And the apostle was referring to that idea of someone who gathered all the children up, a pedagogue, and led them to school, but it was Christ the schoolmaster he was leading them to and leaving them there. Wherefore the law was our pedagogue to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith is come, we're no longer under a schoolmaster or a pedagogue. For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. What have been baptized into Christ? How far water was associated with this or not is not said. It doesn't, we, we're not sure. But if they were baptized in water, it was only an external symbol of a reality. And if the reality wasn't there, the water would do no good except give them a good bath, you see. So they're baptized into Christ. And in that capacity, it's a new creation that comes about. You look at the next words. You have, as many as you have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There. Don't read it like this. There is neither Jew nor Greek. Put a stress on the word there. In Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. Well, a mere sprinkling of water or immersion in water wouldn't blot out whether you were a Jew or a Greek, but it does here. This is a baptism where you leave all that behind to become a new creature. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. So it says here, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. And I think you do know that in the Jewish prayer book, that is found because in the Jewish prayer book it reads that as a part of the service the congregation rise and it's the men who have to say this they say O Lord our God, King of the universe I thank thee that I was not born a Gentile I thank thee I was not born a slave I thank thee I was not born a woman all that's gone now but you couldn't alter that by whether it was water by immersion or sprinkling, this is a, a deeper reality than anything can be done externally on the flesh. Well, now that leads us to another phase of this question of baptism. And that is found by going back to 1 Corinthians, this time, chapter 10. 1 Corinthians, chapter 10. I mentioned just now that in the tabernacle service, Baptism had a place. And I ought to have gone on and referred to passages where in the construction of the tabernacle there was the altar uh, for the burnt offering and inside there was the candlestick or the lampstand. There was the uh, showbread and there was the ark and the mercy seat. And just at the very entrance there was a, a laver so that the priest could wash his hands and wash his feet whenever he went about the service of the Lord. Baptism was practiced continuously in connection with tabernacle services. Well now, when we come to 1 Corinthians 10, we're going back before the, back, before the tabernacle was even spoken about, before any tabernacle was erected. And here's a baptism. 1 Corinthians 10, Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Well, we stop there. First of all, we are told they were all baptized into Moses. Well, that is parallel with the New Testament being baptized into Christ. So here we have a baptism of identification. Moses stood 
to the redeemed children of Israel at that time as a shadow of what Christ is to his redeemed people later on. They were baptized into Moses, their leader and their head. Well now the next thing is, this baptism, of all the baptisms that are mentioned in scripture, was without any water. But you say they were baptized, they passed through the sea. Well how did they pass through the sea? Let's look back, shall we, to the passage which records this, Exodus chapter 14. Exodus chapter 14. Verse 15, And the Lord said unto Moses, Wherefore criest thou unto me? Speak unto the children of Israel that they go forward. Now the Red Sea is in front of them, don't forget. But lift thou up thy rod, and stretch out thine hand over the sea, and divide it. And the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. They shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. And verse 21, And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night, and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea upon the dry ground. So they went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, and the waters were a wall unto them on the right hand and on the left. Well, that's a baptism that comes in the scriptures before ever the tabernacle was set up that baptized this whole nation into Moses without a spot of water touching them. Now, is it accidental or is it intended? Well, will you look at Psalm 106? Here, a long time afterward, the writer of this psalm is reviewing Israel's history and he's led by the Spirit of God to include this crossing of the Red Sea. Psalm 106, verse 9. He rebuked the Red Sea also, and it was dried up. So he led them through the depths, as through the wilderness. As through the wilderness. Well, a wilderness is generally a fairly dry place. He led them through the Red Sea as a wilderness. And Isaiah 63. Isaiah 63, verse 13. He speaks about, in verse 12, they, that led them by the right hand of Moses with his glorious arm, dividing the water before them to make himself an everlasting name. That led them through the deep as an horse in the wilderness that they should not stumble. So you see, wherever the Red Sea crossing is mentioned in the Old Testament, it draws your attention that the water wasn't there. It was gone. It was dry land. So the apostle, reminding these Corinthian believers about their fathers, well, they must have been the Jewish section of the uh, Corinthian church. He said, you remember that all our fathers, my brethren, all our fathers passed through. So he said, there's the baptism that you've got to think about. The baptism that not merely unites you to Moses, but the baptism that unites you to Christ. Now we'll find that this is the character of the baptism that we have to concern, be concerned about with our calling, and we turn directly to Colossians chapter 2, which we were reading just now before this opening of the subject took place. Shall we once more look at Colossians chapter 2? Verse 11 refers to circumcision. 
but it refers to circumcision made without hands. This is no ordinance in the flesh, as you know circumcision is, but it must be the spiritual reality. And that has already been taken up in Philippians, where he writes to the Philippians in chapter 3, verse um, 3, For we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. So there you see, circumcision has already been given a spiritual meaning. It's another shadow of good things to come. So he places circumcision first. Verse 11, In whom also ye are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. So it's something that hands have nothing to do with. In putting off, now our version says, the body of the sins of the flesh. If you've got uh, a text, you'll see that in most cases, the word of the sins go out. He's not talking about sins, he's only talking about the flesh in a believer. In the putting off of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now what can he mean? Does it mean to say that before ever you can become a member of the body of Christ in Colossians, you've got to go through this ordinance? Or does it mean that Christ, in his great sacrificial work, he put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, he disposed of the enmity in the flesh, he made a new man? Well, if circumcision which comes first is to be spiritualized, then there's no need to go back all, the, all over the ground again in the next verse to say that baptism has got to remain, they're all on the same footing. Just as circumcision is a spiritual reality and the shadow is past, so buried with him in baptism wherein also you are risen through the faith of the operation of God who raised him from the dead. And then he goes on to say that all ordinances of all kinds, not merely one, but all are blotted out. Look at verse 14. Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Therefore, let no man judge you in meat, or in drink, or in, a, in, uh, or in respect of a holy day, or to the new moon, or to the Sabbath, and he could have gone on with all the things he's already said, or with the question of circumcision, or baptism in water. They are shadows of good things to come. The reality, the substance, is of Christ. So we come back to our question with which we started. Do you believe in baptism? Well, we have to say, all depends what you mean by baptism, doesn't it? We believe the testimony of Scripture that John the Baptist came and the people of Israel readily accepted baptism as a mode of manifesting repentance and entering into a new relationship. I can quite understand that on the mission field where you have uh, perhaps those who had no upbringing and had no Bible and had no acquaintance with Christian things, to be baptized is the only way in which that particular person can manifest in that country that he's now stepped out from perhaps heathenism into the faith of Christ. And it's not for me to dictate to people who've got that work to do what they do. But you see, that's introducing something from that condition to this which is very different. So, whatever you do, don't say to a person, I do not believe in baptism. Say, what I believe in is the true baptism, all the others are types and shadows. Now, if you like to live in the types and shadows, brother or sister, I can't help you, but uh, I'm not going to live there because you think I ought to. The only baptism that matters is the baptism into Christ. 
The only baptism that ultimately matters is the baptism that he was baptized with, which he had looked forward to after John's baptism was all over. And the only thing that matters is that just as Israel, redeemed by the blood of the Passover lamb, were united with Moses by baptism in a sea which, which stood on either side and they went over dry shod, so I have been redeemed by the blood of Christ and by this same baptism of the Spirit, I am united with Christ, although the ordinance of baptism, so far as water is concerned, doesn't come into it. I don't know whether I've justified our position, because it's a big subject to take, and we want to take it carefully. Uh, I'm not dictating to anybody as to whether they should be baptised. This is a matter of your conscience and um, I don't expect that the Lord would be very um, angry with any one of you if you said, well, I really believe that I ought to because this seems to be enjoined upon me. According to your conscience, you must act. But I would like to ask you also to remember that we have a conscience and that we are not omitting baptism because we don't like it. We are omitting it because we believe that it's an intrusion into a high spiritual calling of a shadow and a type which now has done its work and should retire. I leave it there and pray that God will give us grace to see things in the right spirit because, you see, we've still got to come back to the word of Ephesians 3. If you claim to be members of the body of Christ and blessed with all spiritual blessings, you've got to keep the unity of the spirit if you please God and in keeping the unity of the spirit you've got to remember there's one baptism. Well, now I ask you, which? Which? If you say water, you're going to leave out spirit. Well, you're going to leave out spirit of the most spiritual calling. And then, to finish with, do not call the baptism of the one body the baptism of the spirit. Because you'll make a person think you're referring to the baptism that brings about spiritual gifts and speaking with tongues and miracles. So just speak about the one baptism. And then if it has to be explained, turn to the book and go through chapter and verse for it. So may the Lord give us grace that we may adorn the doctrine of God our Saviour in all things and if there should be difficulties let's meet them in the meek spirit that the scripture speaks but um, maintain the witness that God has given us as freely and as fully as it's humanly possible.